Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the second day of Inner Renewal Week. Today we're going to focus on, again, the theme of the week is the upliftment of consciousness. And yesterday we talked about how we're going to try to help uplift the consciousness of society. But today, more importantly, we'll talk about those things that help us uplift our own consciousness. And I too want to welcome all of you. It's so nice to be together. And um, also want to thank all of our friends who are joining us online. We got lots of emails yesterday from many different places. And I especially want to send our love and greetings to our friends in Chennai, India. Uh, Tulsi wrote us and he said there were 40 of them that stayed up till midnight to watch the talk. So, <laughs> 40 of them are registered and some yeah. stayed up till midnight. Yes, Nonetheless, <laughs> that represents a, a, they're among our dearest and most loyal supporters in India. It's a pleasure to visit there. We could tell you many stories, but we'd run out of time. Let's begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Master, we humbly bow to you all. Bless us with thy guidance, with thy unconditional love. You are the living form of God himself. Come to guide us and bless us. Om. Peace. Amen. We'd like to invite the singers. i 
beautiful life is gay when I give myself away. When I live to please thee, Lord, dancing in thy ray, let me see thee everywhere, hear thy melodies in the air. Let me feel thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Life is beautiful, life is gay, when I give myself away. When I live to please thee, Lord, dancing in thy ray. Let me see thee everywhere, hear thy melodies in the air. Let me feel thy strength in let me feel thy strength in me, give me joy to share. And now, let's invite the Pandavas. When Davy and I are in Italy and we try to speak in Italian, they also clap, <laughs> meaning <laughs> they've made an understandable sentence. Well, I, I think being part of the Olympic judge team, I give John Novak, representing the Pandavas, a 10. <laughs> gold medal. Okay. We have just a wonderful talk today. Be the change. Change yourself. Change the world. I saw a marvelous quote recently from the mystical Sufi poet Rumi, and he said, yesterday I was clever and I wanted to change the world. Today, I am wise, and I'm changing myself. And that's really what we're talking about today, the wisdom of understanding that all we really can affect are changes in ourself. And why is that? Because the teachings of India and from, I think, our own living our life, trying to find truth, we realize that this world isn't as real as it, it presents itself to be. The world of the senses is not the absolute reality. There's a dreamlike quality to it. And if we try to change it, it's like trying to walk through quicksand. We can't really get any real movement forward. 
But what we can work on is our response to what we see outside ourselves. That's all we can work on, really. And because our consciousness is the reality in which we live, not the outer world. It seems like the outer world is the reality, but really it's only our reactions to it that make it seem real, seem good, seem frightening, seem corrupt, seem noble, whatever it might be. And so we need to understand that our reactions, we can change by changing ourselves because the same thing can happen to two different people. And to one person, it will be terrible, and to the other person, it may be wonderful. It says in the Bhagavad Gita, what's day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. What's night to the yogi is day to the worldly man. So here we've been going through a period of shut down where we can't do a lot of things we're used to doing. And for some people, shall we say, the worldly person, and there's a part of that person in all of us, let's be honest, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't go to restaurants, I can't go to clubs, I can't go out there and go to the movies and hang out with my friends. What a nightmare. And for the yogi, it's like, oh, I'm gonna have to be more interiorized now. Maybe I'll take some seclusion. Maybe in the evenings I'll really study the teachings more. This is great. It's the same outer reality, but it's how we react to it. And this is what we can change. And what a great thing that we can. Otherwise, we'd always be bounced around by whatever's seeming to go on outside of ourselves. So how do we begin this process of change? I'm, I'm going to be reading a lot of quotes from Master, because to tell you the truth, he says it much better than I can. I can paraphrase, but it doesn't have his power. OK, so this, how do we begin to change? And this is from one of the eight books that our beloved Anandi compiled, the Wisdom of Yogananda series. This is volume seven, How to Awaken Your True Potential. And for those of us who teach or study the, study the teachings, want to understand them better, these books are invaluable. And this will be what Anandi left for all of us for years to come. So this is the very beginning. This is Yogananda saying, giving us what he calls a sacred invitation. So he says, come out of your closed chamber of limitation. Breathe in the fresh air of vital thoughts. Exhale poisonous thoughts of discouragement, discontentment, and hopelessness. Never suggest to your mind human limitations of sickness, old age, or death, but constantly remind yourself, I am the infinite who has become the body. Take long mental walks on the path of self-confidence. Exercise with instruments of good judgment, introspection, and initiative. Feast unstintingly on creative thinking within yourself and others. Above all, cultivate the habit of meditation. 
This is the inner switch you turn on to connect yourself with the infinite. Hold on to the after effects of meditation by your attention. You will then find you are a reservoir of power in body, mind, and soul by constantly holding in mind the peaceful after effects of meditation, by feeling immortality in the body, and by feeling the ocean of God's bliss beneath the changeable waves of experience, your soul can find perpetual rejuvenation. You all are gods if you only knew it. You must look within. Behind the wave of your consciousness is the sea of God's presence. Claim your divine birthright. Awake, and you shall behold the glory of God. Paramahamsa Yogananda. That's all we had. <laughs> it would be enough. And so what are the things he talks about? Vital thoughts, eschewing, pushing away discouragement, discontent, refusing to accept limitations, self-confidence, good judgment, introspection, and meditation. These are the things that the tools he gives us that we can change ourselves with. And so how do we begin? <clears throat> well, let's focus on one of the many things that he talked about, but, and that's introspection. He, he speaks a lot about introspection in his writings. But I want us all to understand that we have a great responsibility in this world, and that's to change ourselves. That's really what we came in to do. We perhaps, and we'll talk about this by changing ourselves, we can affect, no, I shouldn't say perhaps, definitely, we can affect a change in the world, but our responsibility is to change ourselves. That's what we can work on. Um, you know, when Master first came to Sri Teshwar and he said, uh, do, you know, he said, do you give me my, your unconditional love? Yes. My, your unconditional obedience? Yes. And then, but then Sri Teshwar said, I want you to go back and live in the family home and go to school. No. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Master was an avatar. Why did that little story take place? For us. Yes, Master, whatever you want, but not that. You know, and, and then he, he acted it out. He did it. I mean, don't we all do that? We say, sure, I'm yours, but you know, this area is mine. We'll divide it up. And, and to the extent we do that, we limit ourselves. We have to take responsibility. And when when Master came back rather shamefacedly after going back to the Himalayas and not finding what he was looking for. And he came to his guru, Sri Teshwar, and he said, I am back. And he expected a cold reception. But Sri Teshwar said, wonderful. And, he, and Master said, oh, I must have inconvenienced you by abandoning my responsibilities. Not at all. And it was that moment. We have to realize we all live that moment where we affirm our own self-will, I know better, I, this is what I want to do. And then when we finally 
it doesn't work out so well. We come back to the guru and we said, okay, I'm back. What do we get? We get great. The guru rubs his hands together and says, now I can start my work with you. And that's what it's all about. Just having that openness to say, I want to change. I, I will do whatever I need to do to change. It is my responsibility to change. And everything else, everything else we do in life are just details. We work here, we work there, we go here, we go there. It doesn't matter if, there's, if we're not working on our inner change. And that's, that's what really the point, the main point I want to share with you all is to look at that and understand your potential to change that you chose. You would not be sitting here. There are many other places that on a worldly level are a lot more fun than sitting here in this temple. But you chose to come here because you want to change and you want to know how to change. And you came to the guru, to master, to say, help me change. And so we start with introspection to first step we take in being able to change ourselves. We need to go within with, with honesty. And that's the hard part. We really need to say, what is it in myself that brings me unhappiness, that causes me disharmony with others, that creates tension in my life? What is it that repeatedly comes up, repeatedly, and look at that zero in on it, shine the spotlight of your mind on it, and say, OK, job number one. I'm going to work on that. So you look at those things and identify them. Maybe it's uh, you're impatient. If somebody is trying to explain something and you think you already know it, you interrupt. And then the person gets hurt or feel, withdraws. But whatever it might be, impatience or judgment or critical nature or thinking you're always right, whatever it is, we don't need to be ashamed. We all have them. And again, we wouldn't be sitting in this room if we didn't have them. As, as Shugteshwar said, we'd be adorning some higher planet. But here we are, having taken these steps to get here. Now we need to say, how do I get out of here? So introspection, look at those points that are hanging you up and say, OK, this is the job description now to work on these things. And when they start to rear their ugly heads before they really grab you by the throat, that's the time where you say, I see you. I recognize you. You can't hide in the dark uh, recesses of my subconscious anymore as unaware habit patterns. That's the whole point. These tendencies reside in the subconscious as unseen habit patterns, and they determine how we behave. They control our behavior. And we have to say, <laughs> as they say in Italian, there's some phrases in Italian that can't be duplicated, basta, <laughs> enough. <laughs> and you don't have control over me anymore. And, and then you need to, when they start to arise, before they really become strong, let's say someone's saying something that's bothering you, and you start building up the energy to have a really good, punchy comeback. No. You stop it before it gets strong. And you can do it. The more you do it, the easier it is. 
and then it takes willpower and persistence. Keep doing it, keep working on those things. And little by little what happens is the energy you're putting out in the opposite direction. It's not, I have to say, it's not equal but opposite. It's stronger but opposite. Swami once gave the image of if you're going through a test in your life, think of a, a graph, a line graph. And let's say the test is building in intensity and suffering for you, and it's really hard. He said, you need to put out more energy to quell that. You see the line graph. This is the test. This is your persistence and willpower to quell it. And so persistent effort. Don't give up. Don't, and no matter if you, and you know, we have a number of friends who struggle with alcohol addiction, good friends, devotees. And they, it's so amazing, you know, like one good friend said, you know, I haven't had a drink for, it's been 35 years. And she, I'm sure she's had many opportunities to do it. But that's one little example, that persistent effort, persistent to keep doing it and just say, no matter, even if I fall, I pick up again and I keep going, and I keep going, and I keep going. And so that persistent effort, awareness, persistence, and then finally, work with God. I point to the masters. Work with your guru. Just say, Master, only by your grace can I overcome this. Please, I am doing my best, and you will find that your efforts are redoubled and renewed. I think we've shared with you this story uh, once. We were, our life was, had a lot of turmoil in it at this point, and it was hard to get a regular sadhana going as, as much as we would like. And so we made a vow that for one year we would not miss a morning or an evening practice of Kriya. Those, those would be our pillars that we would hang our life on. And about 10 months had gone by, and everything was going well. And then I, Catherine Karavi is here. I don't know if you remember this, Catherine. But she and I went down to Palo Alto to, I think it was a fundraising thing. And we gave a program. And then it, it was over about 10 o'clock at night. And then Catherine said, you know, I'm sorry, but I really do need to get back to Ananda. I have things I need to do tomorrow. So we drove all night. Well, not all night. We drove, you know, however long it took, three or four hours. Got back. I laid down in bed, fell asleep. And then all of a sudden, the master started shaking me. You didn't do your Kriyas. And I sat bolt upright. And I thought, oh my god. And I did them. But it wasn't me, I'll tell you. I was dead asleep. But because I had put out, I was so close to the goal, I had put out that effort, then God steps in and says, come on, I'll, ma I'll make up the difference. I could your deficit. And so these, this is how we move that energy when we recognize a habit that needs to be changed in introspection, to focus on it, to quell it as soon as it comes, put out persistent, constant energy, and then offer it to God. And you'll find that these habits start, their grip on you 
starts getting, it's really a marvelous feeling. You think that used to be a big issue for me. And now look, I'm stronger than it is. And it's true, you'll find that. So introspection, another very important point that Master talks about is the power of the mind. We've talked about this recently. He said, the mind is the miracle of all miracles. It has the strength to change our consciousness, to make deep effects in our life, effects in our life, and to understand and use the mind to keep it focused on your goal and to keep it, Master talks a lot about initiative and creativity. To use the mind, you have to constantly see, how can I do this a new way? How can I do this a different way? Swamiji would, I have to say, drive us crazy because there was a period where he never made coffee the same way for like two or three days in a row. We'd go over, oh, would you make me a cup of coffee? And we'd start, oh, no, I don't do it that way anymore. This is how I do it now. And there were some of the most bizarre things that he, he for a while he had concentrated coffee ice cubes that you had to get out of the freezer, or we would put them in this funny little sock. But he was, I mean, that's just a little example. Never, he said that master, I, this is hard to believe, but who am I to doubt? He said, Master never even tied his shoelaces the same way twice, because he wanted his mind to be fresh, to use, to see the potential. And that's one thing I love about working with people at Ananda, the underlying creativity. And I look at my dear Pendurani and what she does with the goats and changing and building this and oh, a tree fell on it. Well, okay, well, just always, always putting out the initiative to do things in different ways. And my friend, at the end of your life, you're gonna realize it was not about goats. It was about finding God <laughs> through the goats and you're gonna do it. So anyway, to initiate the power of thought and initiative. And to look at everything in our life, how can I make it fresh? How can I make it alive? Now another point, and this is something very interesting, is to work with your memory. I'm going to read a quote from Master here. It's um, very impressive. <laughs> Memory was given to man to reproduce good. To abuse the power of memory is harmful. To think hatefully of another person because of some remembered injury he inflicted on you is a misuse of memory. One should not bring back any wrong thought and relive it, for then it will stay longer in the mind. This is this most important sentence. Memory was given to us to keep alive only life's good experiences and lessons. Get rid of wrong thoughts by avoiding recalling them. If they come to mind in spite of you, refuse to entertain them. Let me repeat, to remember bad experiences and dwell upon them is an abuse of God's gift to us of memory. Think about it. Think, oh, she said that to me. Oh, he did that. Oh, my goodness, they're saying that. 
Just let it go. It holds you in limitation. Only remember the good. And you think, well, is that being in denial? None of it's real anyway. (laughs) Just try to look back on your life and highlight in golden light the beautiful memories you have, the beautiful times you've had with friends, with whatever it might be. But that's what keeps us, that enables us to change our consciousness. Why is memory so important? Because it's holding on to the past. And negative past memories keep us bound in limitation. Positive memories free us. And so really, this is something important to work on. Don't let negative thoughts, negative memories against people, against situations, your old boss, whatever it may be, that's all Maya. The only thing that's real is God's light. And that can come through to us through beautiful memories. And we all have them. Even the worst life has moments of beauty in it. And that's what we need. It frees us. It isn't. And if you think, well, if I don't hold that bad memory of someone, then they're going to get away with how much they misbehave. God will take care of them. Their karma will take care of them. You don't need to punish them. You walk away clean and free. And then we can just begin to be more and more light and elevated. Now, again, here's a wonderful quote from Master. We have much to do. And one other point I'll touch on before we come to this quote. In our speech, Master emphasizes this, to speak the truth. When we try to speak it magnetically, and if you can't say something truthful and positive, better to be quiet. Because speech creates grooves in the brain. What we say is a vibration. What we think, what we say, what we do, all create grooves in the brain. And the more, if we speak in an unkind ways, unpleasant ways, then it's, again, it's defining ourselves as limited beings. So in our speech with each other, let it reverberate with God's wisdom, with God's love. Swamiji was, his, even just hearing his voice in common speech, you could walk into, maybe you were supposed to meet him, one was supposed to meet him in a restaurant. You walked in and he was already seated at the table. You could hear his voice amidst a crowd because the vibration was filled with joy, with depth, with calmness, and all the shrieking and the words and all that of the world, that will all blow away. But speech that is delivered with calmness, kindness, joy, and love, and we can all do it. There's, remember yesterday we talked about there's that part of the mind that says, oh yeah. You know, the master tells a story of, it's in this book, about a true story of a man, one of his disciples, who had uh, failure karma. And he would start working for a business, and he'd work with it 
just a little while, and that business would fail. And this happened several times. And finally, the man said to Master, I can't do this anymore. I'm destroying all these businesses. And Master said, OK, do this affirmation. Every day and every way, I'm getting better and better. Let's do that as soon as you wake up. And so he began doing it. Master got him another job. He lasted a little longer, and then the business failed. And Master said, do you know why? Because in the back of your mind, even though you were saying, every day and every way, I'm getting better and better, the other part of you was saying, no, you're not. You're just the same old you. Who are you kidding? And there's, that's the enemy, that cynical, doubting part of ourselves that says, you can't do this. You're not good enough. You don't have the willpower. You don't have the discernment. But if we can begin seeing that we, through speech, through action, through memory, through initiative, through willpower, and through faith in God. That's, that's the thing. Maybe we can't do it, but God can do it through us. And that's, that's the important thing. And so to use our, the way we interact with the world, to use it as a tool for self-transformation, that's all it is. Everything that happens to you in life is, it's like a video game. You're gonna, okay, you're gonna go here, you're gonna die. You're gonna go here, you're gonna get destroyed. You know, you go here, you'll lose all your jewels. I don't play video games, but I think that's what they do. <laughs> but it's all, it's all opportunities for you to grow. That's all it is, everything. And the more sincerely you're on the path, the more those opportunities will come. And so to realize that we have these tools and we have the grace of the guru to help us. And this is the wonderful quote. Nitai asked the question yesterday, and then I found this quote. He said, how do we deal with when someone comes to us and they're antagonistic and self-opinionated and, and how, you know, negative and all that. And how do we deal with it? And Master says, every condition of inharmony and criticism which I meet is a direct call to me to release the power of understanding, friendliness, and love. Each encounter with hate and anger calls for compassion and love from me. Each situation involving ugliness or emptiness calls for the release of the power of beauty in the form of creative activity. I have much work to do, and I must be about my father's business, Master says. We all have much work to do, and we must be about our father our guru's business, and what a joy, what a gift it is to do that. So I want to touch on a few more points, and then Jatish will share. Why, and this is an important thought, and we need to understand it, why does changing outer things, like habits, thoughts, all the things we've been talking about, how does it change our consciousness? Isn't that the point? Well, we need to understand that two things. One, there are two different aspects of ourself. 
There's the part that works at changing, and there's the part that needs to be changed. And the more we identify with the part that is working on changing, the more our consciousness gets with, expands and isn't limited by the part that needs changing. It's like you step back and you look at yourself and you say, oh, that isn't so good. That's pretty good. Well, maybe we need to work on that. But who's, who's deciding that? It's your higher self. And you're, the more we work from the point, the self-identity of our higher self, the more that's what we identify with. So the process itself, is that, am I making the point? The process itself of working on inner change is what brings about the change. Because we're snapping back and saying, I can do this. And who's saying that? Our soul nature. Our soul nature is saying, that isn't who you are. You're free of that. And never identify with your limitations. Identify with the part that wants to change. Even if you haven't succeeded yet, that's who you are. And that's why this process is so important and so really exciting. Because once you get started, the sky's the limit. You can change until you, there's that beautiful poem, I believe it's from Songs of the Soul, where Master says, oh, what will become of me? I no longer know myself anymore. That's what we will come to when we look back and say, I'm not that person I used to be. I am my soul nature. I am my oneness with God. And so working with this process helps us to tune into that part of us which is one with God. And Master also says, this is brief so I don't need to read it, but he said, by working with this process of change, if we do it, and I like this phrase, with deep, alert attention and feeling, deep, alert attention and feeling, working with change. It's a needle that changes the grooves in the brain. It seems so hard, but it's not that hard. Deep, alert attention with feeling changes the grooves of the brain. And this is what we can do. It's, again, it's not that hard. We just have to put our mind to it, put our will to it, put our desire to it, our feeling and focus on it. And then finally, yesterday we went on a little trip through time and space, and today we're going to, I'll close with this. Let's go back in time, not too far, 1980. And we'll go, let's travel in space to a kind of a remote area of Yugoslavia. Bosnia, Herzegovina, very remote area, not much of a population. It was part of the 
Republic of Yugoslavia. And at that time, a very brutal communist dictator, Tito, was leading the country. The country was plagued with poverty, with abuse of police state, and all, everything inherent in that. But in 19, and the church was totally repressed. 1980, Tito dies. The country is kind of left in chaos. There's no strong man to take his place. The, in Europe, the freedom and breakdown of the communism is starting to happen. And in a very, in a very remote area, town of Mechagoria, there are six young people, barely teenagers, and they start having visions of the Virgin Mary. And they were just ordinary people, children really, but almost un, without their control, they started almost moving above the ground up this rocky, rocky um, slope, very extended, big rocks, hard to move up. They just had little thin shoes, but they were almost running up this slope. And there they would knelt in prayer and the mother of Divine Mother would speak to them. And how did the church respond? The church was gaining its power, trying to reclaim its dominance. Well, the way churches often responded, they arrested the children. They told, said they were lying. They were um, making it all up to get attention. They tortured them in some ways. They, when they would be hearing the Divine Mother speak, their eyes were unblinking for like an hour, just looking at her. They would put needles in their eyes to see if they had some kind of coating or something on their eyes. But these children were so absorbed in the love of God, none of it mattered. Of course, they would not renounce their experiences. Finally, there was so much pressure, they were released and they would go up every day. And of course, this is the sacred shrine of Medjugorje. Swamiji went there. Some of us in this room have gone there. Many, many healings. And to this day, the visitations continue for some of them who are now late middle-aged adults. And one of them, there's a beautiful movie called Apparition Hill that I recommend about this, about Medjugorje. But one of them, Mariana, said this, to change the world, lukewarm faith and tepid love will never be enough. In these trying times, our faith must be radical and our love limitless. We should endeavor to have our feet on the ground, but our hearts in heaven. It is not always easy to do so. And our own Swamiji said it in his way when asked, how do we deal with difficult times? He said, the way to deal with difficult times is to love heroically. If we want to change ourselves and be a change in the world, just like those little 
visionaries in Medjugorje. They had to love heroically. They had to give everything they had. And they created a sacred place that's one of the lights of this world right now. And we can do this too. We can, with God's grace, learn to love heroically, learn to transform our consciousness, and create a sacred place that all who come will be healed in one way, body, mind, or soul. So it's not always easy to do, as Mariana said, one of the visionaries, but with the grace of God, we can do it. God bless you. Beautiful, thank you. Really, really wonderful. So, changing ourselves and changing the world, but the change has to start with us. There are four primary, very strong forces that can aid us, or if we don't cooperate with them, um, not so much retard us as just not help us, but in order of importance, their attunement, meditation, service, and satsang. And these four forces we can recruit to help us or we can not recruit. And it's not like meditation is going to punish us if we won't do it. It's just not going to be there to help us. So let me first start with attunement because only attunement of these four has the power in and of itself to bring us to self-realization. Meditation doesn't have that power. The techniques don't have that power. Only attunement because attunement Swami said it so clearly to us. We were, we've often quoted this, but it was because it was a very succinct and important moment. We were having breakfast with him in Pune, or, or in uh, Gorgon, and we were talking about spiritual progress and why it took so long, why it was so hard. He was eating breakfast and he's started to bring a fork of food to his mouth and he just paused and he said, the whole of the spiritual path is meant to dissolve the ego. That is done by longer, deeper meditation and by seeing God as the doer in everything. But that first phrase, the whole of the spiritual path is designed to help us dissolve the ego, which is our sense of separation. <clears throat> and so if we keep that clearly in mind, all of these things help do that, but none of them will do it for us. We have to, we have to somehow the ego itself has to begin the process of wanting to dissolve itself. And then because we're not the ego, we're the soul. 
The ego is the form and the personality, the little bundle of self-definitions that we have in this lifetime that we have carried lifetime after lifetime, but the soul is behind that. And so the soul is what is trying to attune us to the divine and dissolve that sense of separation. Now, attunement then comes down because it's, it's hard to attune ourselves to something that is so amorphous that we can't get our minds or even our hearts around it. So what do we attune to God? What does God mean? Do we attune ourselves to the cosmic uh, base of being, to the zero point energy in the, you know, it's, we can't, we can't get there. So God knows that. And he manifests as the guru, the spoken form of God. Really it's manifesting as a compassionate form that we can see and relate to. And so in attunement with the guru, that is the way that we're going to be able to finally, eventually, get rid of, dissolve the ego, surrender it. <clears throat> now, the guru brings many things. He brings guidance, and that's very important. We're trying to go through terrain that we simply have never gone through. Master saw things and knew things that aren't even a glimmer in our consciousness yet. He would sit on the bluffs of Encinitas, and saints would come and manifest and communicate with him. I don't know how many of you sit on the bluffs of anywhere and have saints come and manifest. We can't even imagine something, those states of consciousness. Uh, Swami one time uh, was looking at Master and Master thinking, oh, how wonderful he was, how wonderful you are. And Master just glanced up and said, if you only knew my consciousness. So it's far beyond what we're able. And so if we in our ignorance and our desire to perpetuate the ego reject the guidance of somebody who knows and can be so much more to us, then it's not like the guru is going to get offended. You know the story that Master, when Master came back to Sri Yukteswar and said, I must have inconvenienced you? Sri Yukteswar didn't get offended. He, he just said, let's go get breakfast. I welcomed him back. It seemed casual, but that was a turning point in Master's life. He said because in that he realized at some deep part in his heart, realized for the first time God's unconditional love for him. It didn't matter what he did. It didn't matter where he went, what he thought. God loved him unconditionally and that released something in his heart. About three days later he had that cosmic, the experience in cosmic consciousness. And so that, that acceptance of uh, God, 
in the form of the guru, loves us unconditionally. And so when there's guidance, it's guidance on a practical level, but also guidance primarily in the right attitudes. <clears throat> One of the difficulties Davy and I have in teaching together is that we steal each other's um, ideas. <laughs> and so I have a nice quote written down here that I was going to read to emphasize this point. She already read it. I won't say, Nitai, wherever you are. I won't say again, well, here's the answer to the question you asked yesterday. I had the same quote, so anyway. But that's about attitude. The guidance of the guru is much more about attitude than it is about anything else. And so following that guidance is really, really important. But it's not easy to do that because he's constantly correcting our attitudes. But he just does it very gently. He just says, here's, here's an idea. See if you might want to try it. And if we reject it, then he doesn't get offended. He just backs off. One time in the very early times of Ananda, probably the second year of Ananda, I had just started the incense and oils business. And uh, so we were producing all these thousands of packages of incense every month. And it was, it was very helpful to the economy. So Swami came. I, I asked him to come and visit and give his blessings to the whole process. And he came and he, he looked and he was very happy to see uh, industry and income and so on. And something about the packaging, I don't remember clearly, but something about the process of the packaging. He made one little comment, maybe you should do this. And I, in my ignorance, said, oh, we've already got a better method and, and explained our better method. He didn't say, well, so I'm, I spits me of your incense business. <laughs> He just never gave another suggestion about the incense business because I wasn't ready to hear. So the, the guru gives us these whispers of suggestions. And if we're ready to hear them, then he gives us more and more and more. But if we're not ready to hear them, he isn't offended. He just backs off. So we have to get not only willing to hear, we have to get to the point where we're desperately begging for the advice of the guru and ready to follow it. You know, Davy also mentioned, but I want to emphasize this, what did Sri Yukteswar offer and ask of Master when he became his guru? What did Master ask and offer and uh, offer to and ask of Swami when he became his guru? He said, I give you my unconditional love. Will you give me your unconditional love? I, give, I ask of you unconditional obedience. 
Will you give it to me? Those are the two things that God in the form of the guru is the embodied voice of God, form of God, that is trying to lead us back to our own selves. Those are the two things that he's asking of you. This is the most important thing I'll say all week. Those are the two things that we must give if we want to achieve spiritual union with God. We have to give our unconditional love. Love is the attractive force of the universe, that which draws us, that which we're drawn to. And if we want to get to the point where we merge with God, God has to become the only thing that we're drawn to. Our unconditional love has to go to him. That, as Mariana, I love that quote, it's not easy. <clears throat> it's not easy to do that. God knows it's not easy, and he doesn't expect us to do it. But we have to give that promise. Because if we're not willing to try, then God just backs off and doesn't give us any more suggestions about our packaging because we're not ready to hear it. So I was meditating this morning on this concept, and I was deeply, deeply trying to say to Master, I give you my unconditional love, and really meaning it meaning that there is nothing else in this world that's more important than my attunement with you. And then I came to the second part, unconditional obedience. And I was, again, in trying as deeply and sincerely as possible to say, I give you my unconditional obedience. And I resisted. There are things in my habit pattern that I'm not yet willing to give up. If Master came along and said, I don't know what your biggest attachment is, maybe restlessness, maybe judgment, maybe fear. I, it, you could make a whole laundry list of it. If Master came and said, give that up right now. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready even to want to do that? And unless we get ready to say, yes, I give you my unconditional obedience, then God will back off from us. Now, obviously, we can't fulfill that pledge yet. But the unwillingness to make that pledge will hold us back from further progress. So unconditioned giving God, the guru, our, our desire at least to give him her, our unconditional love and our unconditional obedience. That is the most important thing, that alone and attuning to the guru in order to do that, that alone will draw us, will dissolve the ego, and the only thing that will.
That's the only thing really that God is asking of us. And if we get to that point, even a little bit, I mean, you know, Swami has explained the, the um, kind of process. So first, you're drawn to teachings for self-improvement, but all you want is to read. You're not ready yet to have a living guru who will correct you. America is not ready. The yoga movement in America dismisses uh, the guru path. Oh, that's just a guru path. Gyandev served on, for years on the board of the Yoga Alliance, which is the body that certifies yoga teachers all over the world. He had to fight to even get the sense of yoga the world of yoga, primarily yoga postures, being something that had to do with consciousness and spirituality. Because the movement is, it's just mundane. And so we have a lot of people who accept our training in meditation, but vastly more want something like a, a mindfulness, where there isn't a necessity for a guru relationship because we're a bunch of 12-year-olds. Even those of us who are practicing yoga are still affirming our right to make our own decisions and I know better and who are they to tell me what to do and on and on. But you and I are trying to get out of Maya and in order to get out of Maya, it takes unconditional love and unconditional devotion. I, obedience, I'm, I'm sorry. It, when we do that, then the guru can unleash for us the other things that are going to help us. So if we say even a little bit, that's what I want, then master will come along and say, oh, this is exactly what he did for uh, Dr. Lewis, his first Kriya Yogi in America. On Christmas Eve, Dr. Lewis met him and wanted to know if Master could explain the spiritual eye to him. And Master put his forehead against Dr. Lewis and Dr. Lewis saw the spiritual eye completely and, com and clearly. And after that experience, Master said, I give you my unconditional love, and will you give me yours? Yes. Will you give me your unconditional devotion? Dr. Lewis said, what? Obedience. Obedience. I'm sorry. I keep saying devotion. Uh, must be some, something. Maybe I'm holding back. Maybe that obedience <laughs> is I'm not yet ready to give my unconditional devotion. Could that be the problem here? <laughs> Okay, so unconditional obedience. Dr. Lewis said yes. He said, Master rubbed his hands together like this and said, now I can take charge of your life. And so then Master began to teach him meditation. Now, meditation is important, is vital on the spiritual path. Master said, uh, <clears throat> meditation, you cannot love God truly without meditation because only by meditating 
can you know yourself as the soul in which lies your true and eternal relationship to God? So only, only by meditation, and, and the meditation that we have is primarily around the withdrawal of prana, of life force, from the, the mind and the senses back into the deep spine and to bring it up to the spiritual eye. That's the summation of all of our techniques, really. And it's only by that withdrawal of life force, which is committed to the ego, it's committed to the body, it's committed to the senses, it's committed to the outward direction. It's only by the withdrawal of it that we can dissolve the ego. And so meditation is not techniques. Meditation is a state of consciousness whereby the energy, the life force is withdrawn and brought up and in stillness uh, brought to the spiritual eye. And it's only then when we do that, that we can begin to see that we're the soul and not the ego. And that dissolves the ego, which is the whole purpose of the spiritual path. And so meditation is extremely important, absolutely vital. Now, there are other paths that also withdraw the life force, but um, I don't, but they, they're harder to practice, especially in this age. And so maybe in higher ages, master will come and he'll say, well, we don't need to meditate this lifetime because here's something more effective. But in this lifetime, our attunement to him is by deep daily meditation and the commitment to that and the unconditional obedience to do that as well as we can. And so, so meditation is important. Service, Master said our path is a combination of meditation and service. Service is important, again, not for service itself, but as a means of dissolving the ego. When we truly serve others, when we act as a channel for God's compassion to help others in whatever way, then God flows through us and we are changed by the consciousness that flows through us. Without serving, we won't get there, but only serving probably won't get us there either. The combination is needed because serving is done in a service is uh, more outward, not in its essence. In its essence, we could be purely in the consciousness of what Swami said to us, remember? To see God as the doer in everything. If we were purely seeing God as the doer in our service, then then that would be a complete pathway. But it's hard to do that because the consciousness being outward sees separation and ego. And so the combination of meditation and service is extremely important. I'm, I'm trying to get time because I want to write a book on Ananda Seva. We have a whole one might say a body of courses teaching us how to meditate. 
but we don't have any real manual teaching us how to do service with the right attitude. And th when I get time, that's the book that I'm going to write is Ananda Seva. But God will give that to me or not. It's up to him. I'm just a willing instrument, but, but I would like to get to it. And then finally, and I'll be brief because we want to leave time for some questions, is satsang. For most people, satsang, especially early on in the, uh, on the path, is probably the most important force of all. Because this world is filled with magnetic pulls and attractions and draws. And satsang means to gather together with other truth seekers because that magnetism of other truth seekers will help draw our devotee out of us and align us with the process. And the need for satsang continues on and on and on. And finally, it comes to the point where it's not enough to have it a little bit here and a little bit there. You want to live with other devotees. You want constant satsang. You want to live with other devotees. You want to serve with other devotees. You want to eat with them. You want to meditate with them. You don't want to go and have the um, vibrations of the downward pulling 12-year-old bullies trying to draw you into their way of thinking. You're just not attracted to it. And so more and more, we become attracted only to be in a high vibration, which is sat means truth, to be in the accompaniment of truth. And we're only attracted to that. And so all of these forces work together. But ultimately, it comes down to the end goal for each of us to give our unconditional love and our unconditional obedience <laughs> to God. And unconditional love, unconditional obedience should be the North Star, the Pole Star of our spiritual search. God bless. Okay, we'll take some questions if there are any. Okay, let's start with Mantra Devi, and then we'll do the online. Question that I've often gotten asked from people when teaching discipleship is, how do we have unconditional obedience to the guru when our guru isn't in his body? Okay, to repeat, uh, often she gets the question in giving discipleship, how do we have unconditional obedience to the guru when the guru is in the, not in the body? Well, first of all, there has to be the attitude of unconditional obedience to the guru. And that alone is, as I say, a, a very, very hard thing to, uh, to achieve. And then, as Swami puts it, we should try our best 
What is unconditional obedience really about? It's aligning our individual will with the will of God. And so the guru, being the spoken voice of God, can tell us clearly how to do that. But if we don't have a satguru, which none of us have in a living body at this point, we have lots of teachings, and then we have the guru's representatives. So for us, as we were kind of coming onto the path, and for most of the time, that was Swami. Swami was the best voice that we could get, the clearest voice that we could get of what, what would Master ask in this situation? What would Master do in this situation? Well, if we just make it up from our own thing or say, well, he's not in the living body, so I'll just read some books, we're totally lost. So we'd go to the best source, and by giving our unconditional, or Swami has not asked of us unconditional devotion. He's asked conditional, uh, de devotion, I said again, <laughs> unconditional obedience. He's asked our, con our uh, cooperative obedience. So, so of, of the leaders, because the unconditional devotion goes to a true guru, uh, cooperative obedience should be given to um, the, the representatives of the guru. And if we can't do that, then there is something lacking in our desire to give that to the guru. Now, we may not always agree. We may not always think that a representative is very wise. But the, as Davy said, the very act of trying to do that, the process of trying to do that, accomplishes the result. And so unless there is something that goes against our deep conscience, we should try to cooperate. And it's part of our vows as Savak as to cooperate with the leaders of the work. And so um, it's, it's a tricky thing, and it's hard for one of the leaders to say clearly, cooperate, <laughs> because it sounds dictatorial. But I'm talking here about the actual flow of energy and the process. You either cooperate with your own sense of whatever has gotten your reactive energy going, or you try to cooperate with those who may have um, more of a calm, clear sense of something in the picture. Yes, I'll add some thoughts too. But before we forget, we want to wish happy birthday to Nanda Devi, who's uh, today's birthday. So happy birthday. So, you know, yes, our guru is not in a body. Yes, we are blessed with wise leaders. But the process of obedience 
really means tuning in on an inner level to what the guru wants. Because even if you have a living guru, you can't be with him every moment. And it's, it's through meditation and attunement that we know what the guru is asking of us, even if he's not in the body. I remember, and I've shared this story with some of you, in the early years of Ananda, uh, there was another woman and I who, in those days it was, (laughs) God, it sounds so long ago, but we didn't have computers, we didn't have internet, and so we would send out a Christmas mailing and it would all be done through the mail. And another woman and I were working at the, on getting this mailing ready where you had to print up the little address labels and put them on envelopes and, you know, it took about a week for two people. And this was over when Hansa Temple was our offices, called it the publication building. And so this other woman and I were working on it and it meant seven days of really focused work. Swami drives up in his car. There were several people in the car. He said, I'm going to Los Angeles, and I'm going to give a lecture, and we're going to go to Disneyland, and we're going to go out and have, go to have all sorts of fun things. And I have room in my car for one of you. Which one would like to come? And I knew it meant, I mean, we both knew it meant the other one would have to do double duty to get the mailing out, and the other one would get to go with Swami on the fun trip. And I'm not saying, oh, look how impressive I am. I don't feel that. But I just thought about it and I said, what does Master want? And I knew the other woman did not have the ability to say, I'll stay, you go. And I knew, even though I didn't want to, I did have that ability. So I said, you go, I'll stay. And that night I had one of the highest spiritual experiences of my life. And I knew it was related to that decision. So the guru, I was obedient to what the guru was asking of me. And it wasn't on an inner level. And you can say, well, Swami asked it. Yeah, but he, he left it open. It was like, you figure it out. And I went inside and I thought, Master wants me to stay. It will be good for me spiritually. And indeed it was. And so just listen, develop the ability to listen because God's asking and Guru are asking things of us all the time. And we think, oh no, that's just circumstances. That's just a coincidence. The more you walk the path, the more you realize there are very few coincidences. There's a meaning and a purpose in our lives. And the more we listen, say, okay, this is what Master wants me to do. It's not what I want to do, but I'll do it. And then we, I, you know, Jatisha is such a wise man. He kept combining devotion and obedience. And I think you were trying to tell us something. <laughs> I think the ultimate act of obedience is based in devotion. You were trying to say that, right? I was. <laughs> <laughs> But I didn't want to, I wanted people to intuit it. <laughs> so, um, but, but just a couple more things. Uh, Master said, when I'm gone, I will speak to you through your own conscience, 
and through my whispers from eternity. And so if you want to try for uh, unconditional love and unconditional obedience, um, try reading whispers from eternity and following what's in there because he's speaking to you through that. Okay, Shama. And we'll answer these briefly. Yes, much more briefly. From Daniel, what are some ways, what are some ways to develop deep alert attention and strengthen your concentration? Okay. What are some ways to develop deep alert attention and strengthen your concentration? To be consciously aware that it's what you want to do. So if just like if, you know, I haven't followed the Olympics very closely, but you'd see a little clip of these extraordinary athletes. And and what are they doing? They are the really great ones are absolutely, absolutely absorbed in what they're doing. So love what you do, give it everything you've got, and just try to forget yourself. And that's what you see in the great athletes. They're they're not there. It's just there's one American skater, Nathan Chen, thrilling to watch him. Just absolutely no sense of self. Just the movement and grace and beauty and fluidity because he loves it. And he's given his life to it. So give your life to what you love. Give it your attention. Forget yourself. And when the self starts coming in again, just say, let me focus on what I'm doing. And then it, it really becomes a beautiful experience. In a very practical sense, when you're doing something, do that one thing. Don't, don't multitask. Don't do something else while you're doing it. Just give it full alert attention. And if you train yourself in little ways, it'll continue to produce more and more of a momentum. And I'm just looking at our three of our wonderful singers, Bhagavati Ramesha and Satinan Prashad's in the back. Why do we love their singing? Because they get out of the way. They're just totally absorbed in what they're singing or playing or chanting. And that's why it's so filled with God's presence. Alert, concentrated attention. Okay, one more question if there is one and then... One more for today. From Anne, it seems like a fine line between rejecting something in a conscious way to overcome it and suppressing something that we can mm, that we can not or are not able to fully see in your in yourself in ourselves. Do you have suggestions or insights into how we can acknowledge and accept rather than resist or reject? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, okay, so essentially the question is, it's about repression versus accepting. And how do you have suggestions on how we can focus on something uh, positive but without denial or rejection? Yeah, first of all, don't deny. You know, if you have a difficulty, Davy talked a lot about introspection. If you identify something when you're introspecting, accept the fact that it's there. 
Don't, oh, oh no, 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 I, I never get judgmental. No, no, no. Who would say that I ever get judgmental? You know? <laughs> that just denying it um, just helps perpetuate it. So accept that it's there, but then also accept that you are wanting to overcome that. If there's too much of a tension, if, if you're not really willing yet to try, even try to overcome something, then it's better to put it on the shelf and say, I'm not ready to deal with that one yet. But if you're willing, um, because if, if, you, if you try to overcome something that you're absolutely not willing to overcome, you'll end up repressing. And another thing that Swami was very strong with us about was don't, there's a difference between denying and identifying with. Just if you may have a, a flaw that you need to work on. Well, let's be honest, you do have a flaw. <laughs> I do have a flaw that we need to work, I need to work on. But it doesn't mean I identify, that's who I am. There was a woman in, um, in the 1980s who lived here. She was a marvelous person. Her name was Happy Winningham. Many of you knew her. And she it would just she'd been a Broadway dancer, just a very interesting person, and a marathon runner, and it just had done many things in her life. Yeah, I'll be brief. And um, but she she on our Zoom calls when we're going on, we make this signal to each other. <laughs> but um, she was training. She lived here, training for a. She had been in a horrendous car accident before she had arrived and had actually had a near-death experience and was met by an angelic being and said, are you ready to come? And she said, no, I haven't met the people I'm supposed to meet yet. And she came back into the body, tremendous, horrendous recovery. And then she found Ananda and came here. During this process, she received a lot of blood transfusions and she was training for a marathon was feeling worse and worse, had some blood work. She had AIDS, early days of AIDS epidemic. She went to Swamiji, and the doctors gave her three months to live. She went to Swamiji, and he, she, he told her, he said, don't identify yourself as a person who has AIDS, and don't talk about it to anybody. And she did for a long time. And she just deepened her sadhana, she stopped everything outward she was doing, meditating long hours every day. She lived not for three months, but she lived for six more years. And she became an award-winning speaker on dealing with AIDS and going to clinics, traveling all over. She was a marvelous human being. She eventually passed away. We had her astral ascension at the temple at the Expanding Light. It was not, the dining room was not only filled, I mean, the temple was not only full, but the whole dining room was filled with people we didn't know. It was one of the most powerful ascensions we've ever had. But the point being, Swami told her, don't identify with yourself as a person who has AIDS. And she was free. She, she did her work, and she had such a great sense of humor. Sometimes she would say, she, had a, she was from Texas, she had a Texas accent. She said, you know, I have so few T cells that I'm starting to name them. <laughs> anyway, we all have flaws. Work with them, but don't identify and don't let them limit your 
consciousness that you're a child of God. And we're going to take a little and, break. And as Davy said earlier, reading Master, don't identify with negative memories either, because each of those things just limit you. Realize everything, and this goes to suppression and release, everything is just energy. You don't need to suppress something in order to stop it, transmute it, allow that energy to flow somewhere else. If you're not yet willing to do that, then deal with it later. But don't stuff it, because that won't get rid of it. But, um, but the important point here is don't identify yourself with the negative things, and especially the negative reactions, which come from the ego. Okay, now we are going we'll to take, take a, break. a break. Tomorrow's class is on what Swamiji, what Master and Swamiji brought to help us bring, find solutions more specifically. So um, we'll take a five minute break and then we'll have a noon meditation for whoever would like to stay. 